Hello everyone, welcome to this episode of Sleep and Relax ASMR. I'd like to say a quick thank you to Kind Brew Coffee for sponsoring this episode. Kind Brew Coffee is a business that is on a mission to make the world a better place with every cup of coffee you brew. Every purchase you make on Kind Brew's website comes with a simple promise. They donate a portion of every sale to a charity, often of your choice. This isn't something they do temporarily. This is part of the foundation of their business today and forever. It's quite simple how it works. Visit kindbrewcoffee.com, the words kind and brew, kindbrewcoffee.com. Check out their selection of decaf, espresso, light roast, you name it. And at checkout, simply comment your preferred charity of choice. Kind Brew will follow up with a receipt verifying their contribution from your order. It's a win-win. You get delicious coffee uh, and you do good for uh, the world around you and a cause that you care about. It's you using your buying power to consciously make a positive impact. And by the way, the coffee is delicious. I personally drank an espresso shot right before recording. When you visit kindbrewcoffee.com, make sure to use promo code ASMR for 15% off your purchase. And of course, you get free shipping as well within the United States, although they do ship worldwide. Kindbrewcoffee.com, promo code ASMR. Get that 15% off. Enjoy delicious coffee and contribute with an act of kindness. Thanks to Kind Brew Coffee, and now let's jump into this episode. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Sleep and Relax ASMR. Today, uh, we'll be reading uh, at least a couple chapters of The Canterville Ghost by Oscar Wilde. I found this on feedbooks.com, I think it is should be a um, public domain work by this point. Um, anyway, Oscar Wilde is one of the very few authors that I remember uh, reading um, some of his work in school, and so I always, um, and I always enjoyed it for the most part. Um, I was really not a, a big reader. I wish I were. Um, but I... I saw this available on feed books and I figured uh should read it why not why not the the title alone kind of piqued my interest in the fact it's Oscar Wilde uh kind of sealed the deal for me so let's jump into it the Canterville Ghost by Oscar Wilde chapter one when Mr. Haram B. Otis this is a real name Haram B. Otis, I'm not making this up. When Mr. Haram B. Otis, the American minister, bought Canterville Chase, everyone told him he was doing a very foolish thing, as there was no doubt at all that this place was haunted. Indeed, Lord Canterville himself, who was a man of the most punctilious honor, I'm not sure what that word is, had felt it his duty to mention the fact to Mr. Otis when they came to discuss terms. We have not cared to live in the place ourselves, said Lord Canterville, since my grand-aunt, the Dillwagger Duchess of Bolton, was frightened into a fit from which she never really recovered, by two skeleton hands being placed on her shoulders as she was dressing for dinner, and I feel bound to tell you, Mr. Otis, that the ghost has been seen by several living members of my family, as well as by the rector of the parish, the Reverend Augustus Dampier, who is a fellow of King's College, Cambridge. After the unfortunate accident to the Duchess, none of our younger servants would stay with us, 
and Lady Canterville often got very little sleep at night in consequence of the mysterious noises that came from the corridor and the library. My lord, answered the minister, I will take the furniture and the ghosts at a valuation. I come from a modern country where we have everything that money can buy and all of our spry young fellows painting the old world red and carrying off our best actors and prima donnas. I reckon that if there was such a thing as a ghost in Europe, we'd have it at home in a very short time in one of our public museums or on the road as a show. I fear that ghosts exist, said Lord Canterville, smiling, though it may have resisted the overtures of your enterprising impresarios. It has been well known for three centuries, since 1584, in fact, and always makes its appearance before the death of any member of our family. Well, so does a family doctor, for that matter, Lord Canterville. But there is no such thing, sir, as a ghost. And I guess the laws of nature are not going to be suspended for the British aristocracy. Aristocracy. You are certainly very natural in America, answered Lord Canterville, who did not quite understand Mr. Otis's last observation. And if you don't mind a ghost in the house, it is all right. Only you must remember that I warned you. A few weeks after this, the purchase was concluded, and at the close of the season, the minister and his family went down to Canterville Chase. Mrs. Otis, who, as Miss Lucretia R. Tapin of West 53rd Street, had been a celebrated New York belle, was now a very handsome middle-aged woman with fine eyes and a superb profile. Many American ladies on leaving their native land adopt an appearance of chronic ill health, under the impression that it is a form of European refinement. But Mrs. Otis had never fall, fallen into this error. She had a magnificent constitution and a really wonderful amount of animal spirits. Indeed, in many respects, she was quite English and was an excellent example of the fact that we have really everything in common with America nowadays, except, of course, language. Her eldest son, christened Washington by his parents in a moment of patriotism, which he never ceased to regret, was a fair-haired, rather good-looking young man who had qualified himself for American diplomacy by leading the Germans, the, yeah, the German at the Newport Casino for three successive seasons, and even in London was well known as an excellent dancer. Gardenias and the peerage were his only weaknesses. Otherwise, he was extremely sensible. Miss Virginia E. Otis was a little girl, fifteen, lovely as a fawn and with a fine freedom in her large blue eyes. She was a wonderful Amazon, and had once raced old Lord, Bill, old Lord Bilton on her pony twice around the park, winning by a length and a half just in front of the Achilles statue, to the huge delight of the young Duke of Cheshire, who proposed for her on the spot, and was sent back to Eton that very night by his guardians in floods of tears. After Virginia came the twins, who were usually called the Stars and Stripes, as they were always getting swished. They were delightful boys, and with the exception of the worthy minister, the only true Republicans of the family. As Canterville Chase is seven miles from Ascot, the nearest railway station, Mr. Otis had telegraphed for a wagonette to meet them, and they started on their drive in high spirits. It was a lovely July evening, and the air was delicate with the scent of the pine woods. Now and then they heard a wood pigeon brooding over its sweet voice, or saw, deep in the rustling fern, the burnished breast of the pheasant. Little squirrels peered at them from the, from the tree branches 
as they went by, and the rabbits scudded away through their bushwood and over the mossy knolls with their white tails in the air. As they entered the avenue of Canterville Chase, however, the sky became suddenly overcast with clouds. A curious stillness seemed to hold the atmosphere. A great flight of, ro of rooks passed silently over their heads, and before they reached the house, some big drops of rain had fallen. Standing on the steps to receive them was an old woman, neatly dressed in black silk, with a white cap and apron. This was Mrs. Umney, the housekeeper, who Mrs. Otis, at Lady Canterville's earnest request, had consented to keep on in her former position. She made them each a low curtsy as they alighted, and said in a quaint, old-fashioned manner, I bid you welcome to Canterville Chase. Following her, they passed through the fine Tudor Hall into the library, a long, low room, paneled in black oak, at the end of which was a large stained-glass window. Here they found tea laid out for them, and after taking off their wraps, they sat down and began to look round, while Mrs. Umney waited on them. Suddenly, Mrs. Otis caught sight of a dull red stain on the floor just by the fireplace, and, quite unconscious of what it really signified, said to Mrs. Umney, I am afraid something has been spilt there. Yes, madam, replied the old housekeeper in a low voice. Blood has been spilt on that spot. How horrid, said Mrs. Otis. I don't at all care for bloodstains in a sitting room. It must be removed at once. The old woman smiled and answered in the same low, mysterious voice. It is the blood of Lady Eleanor de Canterville, who was murdered on that very spot by her own husband, Sir Simon de Canterville, in 1575. Sir Simon survived her nine years and disappeared suddenly under very mysterious circumstances. His body has never been discovered, but his guilty spirit still haunts the chase. The blood, stained, the blood stain has been much admired by tourists and others and cannot be removed. That is all nonsense. Nonsense, cried Washington Otis. Pinkerton's champion stain remover and Paragon detergent will clean it up in no time. And before the terrified housekeeper could interfere, he had fallen upon his knees and was rapidly scouring the floor with a small stick of what looked like a black cosmetic. In a few moments, no trace of the bloodstain could be seen. I knew Pinkerton would do it, he said triumphantly as he looked round at his admiring family. But no sooner had he said these words than a terrible flash of lightning lit up the somber room. A fearful peal of thunder made them all start, start to their feet, and Mrs. Umney fainted. What a monstrous climate, said the American minister calmly, as he lit a long cheroot. I guess the old country is so overpopulated that they have not enough decent weather for everybody. I've always been of, of opinion that emigration is the only thing for England. My dear Haram, cried Mrs. Otis, what can we do with a woman who faints? Charge it to her like, like breakages answered the minister. She won't faint after that. And in a few moments, Mrs. Umney certainly came to. There was no doubt, however, that she was extremely upset, and she certainly warned Mr. Otis to beware of some terrible trouble coming to the house. I have seen many things with my own eyes, sir, she said, that would make any Christian's hair stand on end. And many, and many a night, I have not closed my eyes in sleep for the awful things that are done here. Mr. Otis, however, and his wife, warmly assured the honest soul that they were not afraid of ghosts, and, 
after invoking the blessings of Providence on her new master and mistress and making arrangements for an increase of salary, the old housekeeper tottered off to her own room. Chapter 2 The storm raged fiercely all that night, but nothing of particular note occurred. The next morning, however, when they came down to breakfast, they found the terrible stain of blood once again on the floor. I don't think it can be fault of the Paragon detergent, said Washington, for I have tried it with everything. It must be the ghost. He accordingly rubbed out the stain a second time, but the second morning it appeared again. The third morning also it was there. Though the library had been locked up at night by Mr. Otis, by Mr. Otis himself and the key carried upstairs, the stain continued to appear. The whole family were now quite interested. Mr. Otis began to suspect that he had been too dogmatic in his denial of the existence of ghosts. Mrs. Otis expressed her intention of joining the, psych the Psychical, Psychical Society, and Washington prepared a long letter to Messrs. To Messrs. Myers and Podmore. M oh, Messrs. Myers and Podmore, the subject of the permanence of sanguinous stains when connected with crime. Sorry, yeah, some of these are I'm trying to read this and it's difficult. <laughs> that night, all doubts about the objective ex existence of Phantasma were removed forever. The day had been warm and sunny, and in the cool of the evening, the whole family went out to drive. They did not return home until nine o'clock, when they had a light supper. The conversation in no way turned upon ghosts, so there were not even those primary conditions of receptive expectation which so often precede the presentation of psych psychical phenomena. The subjects discussed, as I have since learned from Mr. Otis, were merely such as form the ordinary conversations of cultured Americans of the better class, such as the immense superiority of Miss Fanny Davenport over Sarah Bernhard as an actress, uh, the difficulty of obtaining green corn, buckwheat cakes, and hominy even in the best English houses, the importance of Boston in the development of the world's soul, the advantages of the baggage check system in railway traveling, and the sweetness of the New York accent as compared to the London droll. No mention at all was made of the supernatural, nor was Sir Simon de Canterville alluded to in any way. At eleven o'clock the family retired, and by half-past all the lights were out. Sometime after that, Mr. Otis was awakened by a curious noise in the corridor outside his room. It sounded like the clank of metal, and seemed to be coming nearer every moment. He got up at once, struck a match, and looked at the time. It was exactly one o'clock. He was quite calm and felt his pulse, which was not, was not at all feverish. The strange noise can still continued, and with it he heard distinctly the sound of footsteps. He put on his slippers, took a small oblong file out of his dressing case, and opened the door. Right in front of him he saw, in the wan mooning, in the wan mooning, an old man of terrible aspect. His eyes were as red burning coals. Long gray ha hair fell over his shoulders in matted coils. His garments, which were of antique cut, were soiled and ragged, and from his wrists and ankles hung heavy manacles and rusty eaves. That's what that means. 
My dear sir, said Mr. Otis, I really must insist on your oiling those chains and have and have brought you for that purpose a small bottle of the Tam Tammany Rising Sun Lubricator. It is said to be completely efficacious upon one application, and there are several testimonials to that effect on the wrapper from some of our most eminent native divines. I shall leave it here for you by the bedroom candles, and will be happy to supply you with more should you require it. With these words, the United States minister laid the bottle down on a marble table and, closing his door, retired to rest. For a moment, the Canterville ghost stood quite motionless in natural indignation. Then, dashing the bottle violently upon the polished floor, he fled down the corridor, uttering hollow groans and emitting a ghastly green light. Just, however, as he reached the top of the great oak staircase, a door was flung open. Two little white-robed figures appeared, and a large pillow whizzed past his head. There was evidently no time to be lost, so, hastily adopting the fourth dimension of space as a means of escape, he vanished through the wainscoting, and the house became quite quiet. <laughs> On reaching a small secret chamber in the left wing, he leaned up against <clears throat> excuse me, a moonbeam to recover his breath, and began to try... <clears throat> Excuse me, and began to try and realize his position. Never in a brilliant and uninterrupted career of three hundred years had he been so grossly insulted. He thought of the dog-wagger duchess, whom he had frightened to a fit as she stood before the glass in her lace and diamonds. Of the four housemaids who had gone off into hysterics when he merely grinned at them through the curtains of one of the spare bedrooms. Of the rector of the parish, whose candle he had blown out as he was coming late one night from the library, and who had been under the care of Sir William Gull ever since, a perfect martyr to nervous disorders, and the old Madame de Tremoulac, who had been, who, having wakened up one morning early and seen a skeleton seated in an armchair by the fire reading her diary, had been confined to her bed for six weeks with an attack of brain fever, and on her recovery had become reconciled to the church and broken off her reconnection, her connection with that notorious septic Monseigneur de Voltaire. He remembered the terrible night when the wicked Lord Canterville was found choking in his dressing room with a knave of diamonds halfway down his throat and confessed just before he died that he had cheated Charles James Fox out of 50,000 euros, quid, euros, pounds, at Croxford's by means of that very card and swore that the ghosts had made him swallow it. <clears throat> All his greatest achievements came back to him again. From the butler, who had shot himself in the pantry because he had seen a green hand tapping at the window pane, to the beautiful Lady Stuffield, who was always obliged to wear a black velvet band around her throat to hide the mark of five fingers burnt upon her white skin, and who drowned herself at last in the carp pond at the end of King's Walk. With the enthusiasm, when the th with the enthusiastic egotism of the true artist, he went over his most celebrated performances and smiled bitterly to himself as he called to mind his last appearance as Red Reuben, or the Strangled Babe, his debut as Gaunt Gibbon, the bloodsucker of Bexley Moor, and the furrower he had excited one lovely June evening by merely playing nine pins with his own bones upon the lawn, the lawn tennis ground. And after all this, some wretched modern Americans were to come and offer him the rising sun lubricator and throw pillows at his head. It was quite unbearable. Besides, no ghost in history had ever been treated in this manner. Accordingly, he determined to have vengeance and remain till daylight in an attitude of deep thought.
Chapter 3 The next morning, when the Otis family met at breakfast, they discussed the ghost at some length. The U.S. minister was naturally a little annoyed to find that his present had not been accepted. I have no wish, he said, to do the ghost any personal injury, and I must say that considering the length of time he has been in the house, I don't think it is all polite to throw pillows at him. A very just remark, at which I am sorry to say the twins burst into shouts of laughter. Upon the other hand, he continued, if he really declines to use the Rising Sun Lubricator, we shall have to ask, we shall have to take his chains from him. It would be quite impossible to sleep with such a noise going on outside the bedrooms. For the rest of the week, however, they were undisturbed, the only thing that excited any attention being the continued renewal of the blood stain on the library floor. This certainly was very strange, as the door was always locked at night by Mr. Otis, and the windows kept closely barred. The chameleon-like color, also, the stain excited a good deal of comment. Some mornings it was a dull red, then would be vermilion, then a rich purple, and once they came down for family prayers according to the simple rites of the Free American Reformed Episcopalian Church, they found it a bright emerald green. These kaleidoscopic changes naturally amused the party very much, and bets on the subject were freely made every evening. The only person who did not enter the joke was little Virginia, who, for some unexplained reason, was always a good deal distressed at the sight of the bloodstain, and very nearly cried the morning it was emerald green. The second appearance of the ghost was on Sunday night. Shortly after they had gone to bed, they were suddenly alarmed by a fearful crash in the hall. Rushing downstairs, they found that a large suit of old armor had been detached from its stand and had fallen on the stone floor, while, while seated in a high back chair was a Canterville ghost rubbing his knees with an expression of acute agony on his face. The twins, having brought their pea shooters with them, at once discharged two pellets on him with that accuracy of aim which can only be attained by long and careful practice on a writing master. While the United States minister covered him with his revolver and called upon him in accordance with California etiquette to hold up his hands. The ghost started up with a wild shriek of rage and swept through them like a mist extinguishing Washington Otis's candle as he passed, and so leaving them all in total darkness. On reaching the top of the staircase, he recovered himself and determined to give his celebrated peal of demonic laughter. This he had on more than one occasion found extremely useful. It was said to have turned Lord Raker's wig gray in a single night, and had certainly made three of Lady Canterville's French governesses give warning before their month was up. He accordingly laughed his most horrible laugh till the old vaulted roof rang and rang again, but hardly had found the fearful echo died away when a door opened and Mrs. Otis came in a light blue dressing gown. A light blue dressing gown. I'm afraid you are far from well, she said, and I brought you a bottle of Dr. Dobell's tincture. If it is indigestion, you will find it most excellent remedy. The ghost glared at her in fury and began at once to make preparations for turning himself into a large black dog an accomplishment for which he was justly renowned, and to which the family doctor always attributed the permanent idiocy of Lord Canterville's uncle, the Honorable Thomas Horton. The sound of approaching footsteps, however, made him hesitate in his fell purpose, so he contended himself with becoming faintly phosphorescent and vanished with a deep churchyard groan, just as the twins had come up to him. On reaching his room, he entirely broke down, and became a prey to the most violent agitation. The vulgarity of the twins and the gross materialism of Mrs. Otis were naturally extremely annoying, 
but what really distressed him most was that he had been unable to wear the suit of mail. He had, he had hoped that even modern Americans would be thrilled by the sight of a specter in armor, if for no more sensible reason, at least out of respect for their national poet Longfellow, over whose graceful and attractive poetry he himself had whiled away many a weary hour when the Cantervilles were up in town. Besides, it was his own suit. He had worn it with great success in the Camelworth tournament and had been highly complimented on it by no less a person than the Virgin Queen herself. Yet when, we, when he had put it on, he had been completely overpowered by the weight of the huge breastplate and steel cask and had fallen heavily on the stone pavement, barking both his knees severely and bruising the knuckles on his right hand. For some days after, he was extremely ill and hardly stirred out of his room at all, except to keep the bloodstain in proper repair. However, by taking great care of himself, he recovered, and resolved to make a third attempt to frighten the United States minister and his family. He selected Friday, the 17th of August, for his appearance, and spent most of the day in looking over his wardrobe, ultimately deciding in favor of a large slouch hat with a red feather, a winding, a winding sheet frilled at the wrists and neck, and a rusty dagger. Towards evening, a violent storm of rain came on, and the wind was so high that all the windows and doors in the old house shook and rattled. In fact, it was such, it was just such weather as he loved. His plan of action was this. He was to make his way quietly to Washington Otis's room, gibber at him from the foot of the bed, and stab himself three times in her throat to the sound of low music. He bore Washington a special grudge, being quite aware that it was he who was in the habit of removing the famous Canterville bloodstains by means of Pinkerton's Paragon detergent. Having reduced the reckless and foot-hardy youth to a condition of abject terror, he was then to proceed to the room occupied by the U.S. minister and his wife, and there to place a clammy hand on Mrs. Otis's forehead while he hissed into her trembling husband's ear the awful secrets of the charnel house. With regard to little Virginia, he had not quite made up his mind. He had never insulted him, she had never insulted him in any way, and was pretty and gentle. A few hollow groans from the wardrobe he thought would be more than, suffic than sufficient, or if that failed to wake her, he might grab, grabble at the counterpane with palsy-twitching fingers. As for the twins, he was quite determined to teach them a lesson. The first thing to be done was, of course, to sit upon their chests so as to produce a stifling sensation of nightmare. Then, as their beds were quite close to each other, to stand between them in the form of green, icy-cold corpse till they became paralyzed with fear, and finally to throw off the winding sheet and crawl around the room with white, bleached bones and one rolling eyeball in the character of Dumb Daniel or the Suicide Skeleton, a role in which, be, in which he had on more than one occasion produced a great effect and which he considered quite equal to his famous part of Martin the Maniac or the Masked Mystery. This is great. <clears throat> At half past ten, he heard the family going to bed. For some time, he was disturbed by wild shrieks of laughter from the twins, who, with the light-hearted gaiety of schoolboys, gaiety, were evidently amusing themselves before they retired to rest. But at a quarter past eleven, all was still, and as midnight sounded, he sallied forth. The owl beat against the window panes, the raven croaked from the old yew tree, and the wind wandered, moaning around the house like a lost soul. But the Otis family slept unconscious of their doom, and high above the rain and storm he could hear the steady snoring of the minister of the United States. He stepped stealthily out of the wainscoting, with an evil smile on his cruel wrinkled mouth, wrinkled mouth, and the moon hid her face in a cloud as he 
stole past, stole past the great oriel window, where his own arms and those of his murdered wife were blazoned in azure and gold. On and on he glided, like an evil shadow, the very darkness seeming to loathe him as he passed. Once he thought he heard something call and stopped, but it was only the bang of a dog from the Red Farm, and he went on, muttering strange 16th century curses, and ever and anon brandishing the, ru the rusty dagger, and even brandishing the rusty dagger in the midnight air. Finally, he reached the corner of the passage that led to luckless Washington's room. For a moment, he paused there, the wind blowing his long gray locks about his head and twisting his grotesque and twisting into grotesque and fantastic folds the nameless horror of the dead man's shroud. Then the clock struck the quarter, and he felt the time was the time had come. He chuckled to himself, then turned the corner, but no sooner had he done so than, with a piteous wail of terror, he fell back and hid his blanched face in his long, bony hands. Right in front of him was standing a horrible specter, motionless as a carbon image, and monstrous out of, as a madam's dream. Its head was bald and burnished, its face round and fat and white, and hideous laughter seemed to have writhed its features into an eternal grin. From the eyes streamed rays of a scarlet light. The mouth was a wide well of fire, and a hideous garment like to his own, swathed with its, with its silent snows the titan form. On its breast was a placard with strange writing in antique characters, some scroll of shame, it seemed, some record of wild sins, some awful calendar of crime, and, with his right hand, it bore aloft a falchion of gleaming steel. Never having seen a ghost before, he naturally was terribly frightened, and after a second hasty glance at the awful phantom, he fled back to his room, tripping up in his long winding sheet as he sped down the corridor and finally dropping the rusty dagger into the minister's jackboots where it was found in the morning by the butler. Once in the privacy of his own apartment, he flung himself down on a small pallet bed and hid his face under his clothes. After a time, however, the brave old Canterville spirit asserted himself, and he determined to go and speak to the other ghost as soon as it was daylight. Accordingly, just as the dawn was touching the, <clears throat> the hills with silver, he returned towards the spot where he had first laid eyes on the grisly phantom, feeling that, after all, two ghosts were better than one, and that by that aid of his new friend he might safely grapple with the twins. On reaching the spot, however, a terrible sight met his gaze. Something had evidently happened to the specter, for the light had entirely faded from its hollow eyes. The gleaming falchion had fallen from its hand, and it was leaning up against the wall in a, stained, in a strained and uncomfortable attitude. He rushed forward and seized it. In his, sorry, he rushed forward and seized it into his arms. When, to his horror, the head slipped off and rolled on the floor. The body assumed a recumbent posture, and he found himself clasping a white dimity bed curtain with a sweeping brush, a kitchen cleaver, and a hollow turnip lying at his feet. Unable to understand this curious transformation, he clutched the placard with feverish haste, and there, in the gray morning light, he read these fearful words. Ye Otis Ghost, ye only true and original spook, beware of ye imitations, and others are counterfeit. The whole thing flashed across him. He had been tricked, foiled, and outwitted. The old Canterville, the old Canterville looked, look came into his eyes. He ground his toothless gums together, and raising his withered hands high above his head, swore, according to the picturesque phraseology of the antique school, that when Chanticleer had sounded twice his merry horn, deeds of blood would be wrought, 
and murder walk abroad with silent feet. Hardly had he finished this awful oath, when from the red-tiled roof of a distant homestead a cock crew. He laughed a long, low, bitter laugh and waited. Hour after hour he waited, but the cock, for some strange reason, did not crow again. Finally, at half-past seven, the arrival of the housemaid gave him his fearful vigil, and he stalked back to his room thinking of his vain oath and baffled purpose. There he consulted several books of ancient chivalry, of which he was exceedingly fond of, and found that, on every occasion on which his oath had been used, Chanticleer had always crowed a second time. Perdition seized the naughty fowl, he muttered. I have seen the day with my stout spear. I would have run him through the gorge, and made him crow for me, and tweer in death. He then retired to a comfortable lead coffin, and stayed there till evening. And that was the end of chapter three. Next episode, uh, or maybe next week, I will uh, pick up where we left off, chapter four. Um, hopefully you guys are enjoying it so far. Uh, I know I am. It's a really interesting little, uh, sorry about that. It's a really interesting little uh, novel, something very different, right? Not your typical uh, spooky uh, horror story or, or scary tale or mystery. Yeah, pretty, pretty uh, charming uh, story so far. So, have any questions, comments, concerns? You can always email the show hello at sleep and relax ASMR. You can check out our website sleep and relax ASMR.com. That's all for now. Thanks as always for listening and take care. Thanks again to Kind Brew Coffee for sponsoring this episode of Sleep and Relax ASMR. If you're looking to try delicious coffee and impact a cause you care about, make sure to visit kindbrewcoffee.com and use promo code ASMR for 15% off your order. Kindbrewcoffee.com, promo code ASMR. Thanks again for listening.